Okay, look, it is like, you know, 9.45, you can all wake up now, it's all good. John, our normal bass player, it's funny, uh, he and Karen went skydiving down south, and, and they both lived, so it's a, he'll be back <laughs> next week, it'll, it'll be great. So, everybody remember your card, it looks like? Watch people come in at like 10.05, just be like, oh, dude, seriously, you know, just <laughs> g- give them the look. Uh, when you came in, hopefully everybody, each family got one of these. Everybody, yes, yes? Okay, if you didn't grab one, these are directions to the baptism today. You all need to come to the baptisms. Bring a blanket, even if it's cold. It doesn't matter. We're all going to be there and support the people getting baptized. And maybe if you are thinking about, boy, I don't know if I want to get baptized. It's kind of weird to do this at a pool. You can see exactly what takes place, exactly what it's like. It'll be great. And we're giving you lunch, too. So never pass up a free lunch. It's always, it's always a good thing. Um, bring a lawn chair. What's that? Bring a lawn chair. And bring what? It's like I said, bring some love. I don't know what that says. Okay, well, bring love. How's that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, give you an update on our softball teams. Uh, the guys' team lost their championship game. I know. Uh, but it was like eight innings. They lost like 18 to 14, but they were giving it their best shot. The co-ed team has their uh, championship game tomorrow night at 9.15 at Hagerman. If you guys want to come and watch, maybe we'll win. You know, right now we're 10-0. and 0. We're trying to make 11-0. and 0. We'll be really sad. We, we like win all season long, we lose the last. That'd be terrible. That'd be terrible. It's not going to happen. We're going to win. And then last week, I was talking to a friend of mine. And he says, and I actually, every week, I listen to my messages to see if, like, oh, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say, obviously. And uh, something about a poll or something. I don't know. Anyway. Um, anyway. Uh, if you were in first service, you're not getting that. I'm really sorry, but you'll, you'll get it from now on, apparently. Uh, but anyway, uh, they say I, I talk too fast. And I know, I talk really fast. I listen to myself, and I'm like, I need to slow down. I'm going to try to slow down. Good luck with that. That's how it's going to go. Why don't you stand with me reading God's Word? This is John 16, verse 1, and it says this. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as a people would listen to the things that you long to say to us, that we would hear you, and that we would be a people who don't keep going astray, but those who actually listen to your voice, hear you, follow you, and go the direction you call us to, that we would actually abide in you. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, If you are new, we are just going through the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 15. You can turn there today, right now, if you want to. John gives you a lot of interesting insights into who God is. Uh, Today is a concept that's spread all throughout Scripture, and it's the idea of what's called fruitfulness, uh, that God tends us and that God is like a vine dresser. All the way back in Genesis 1.28, God says, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So mankind, they're told to be fruitful people, that they're to have children, and those children are to be fruitful. And then those families are supposed to go out and extend God's influence and His grace and His love to all of God's creation. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God uses this metaphor for being faithful of those who love Him and serve Him and live with Him. You see this? I'll give you a ton of verses. If you want to write them down, they'll be up there just for a minute. Right? There you go. Write all these down. Look them up later. You'll be glad you did. Uh, today, this whole idea actually extends to the what you hear about vine 
tending and the work of a viticulturalist. Uh, this is all metaphor. The, the occupation of a viticulturalist, we probably know about because, you know, we're like in wine country. Everybody around here keeps, you know, vineyards keep popping up everywhere. you got Napa Valley up north. So, you know, we, we kind of got an idea of this. In the Middle East, this actually still happens as well. And vine tending was a very popular profession in Jesus' day. So this whole metaphor makes a lot of sense. To the Jews, they actually knew all about this as well because in Isaiah 5, God says this. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then later it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. So this whole metaphor that you got the, the vineyard and, and the vine dresser and the viticulturist, all this goes together. The viticulturist, he plants the ground, he waters, he cares for the, the grapes, he grows them, he prunes the dead branches. And when fruit time comes, that's a harvest, he harvests all of the fruit. And this is the thing that Jesus builds on today in John chapter 15. The whole idea of fruit also throughout the New Testament is seen as giving and loving and sharing and kindness and offering hope and doing the work of God. And demonstrating the work and the love of God demonstrates also our fruitfulness as well. So if your Bible, John chapter 15, this is where Jesus starts. 15 verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. So he lays out the metaphor right there. The father is the gardener. He's the viticulturalist. That's what the father is. And he oversees and does the planting, the gardening, the tending, the pruning. And Jesus says that he is the vine. And out of that vine comes the branches. We are branches. See, you guys are quick like that. That's great. Okay, we are the branches. We don't get to bear anything if we're not connected to the vine. We must be connected to the vine. And then, this is a great metaphor, but you hit verse 2, and everybody goes sideways and they lose everything that Jesus is trying to talk about. And this is one of the most debated issues today, which we're going to talk about a little bit. That's why I wore this shirt that I'm wearing today. Uh, And I'll give you my take on this whole section, which of course is God's take, you know, because... Gotta give you a little theology. We'll understand this. Verse 2, it says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Then they connect that with verse 6, it says, Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, that should scare you a little bit when you read that. It sounds like God has work for you to do, and if you don't do it, he's going to cut you off from salvation, throw you into the fires of hell, and burn you like a forgotten marshmallow on his campfire. That's, that's kind of what it sounds like. It's kind of troubling because this is written to believers. It's written to those who actually believe. And so the question is, what is Jesus really trying to say here? Because this runs counter to much of the other teaching in the Gospel of John and to other Gospels as well. Jesus says he comes to give us eternal life. And if you get cut off, well, then you didn't have eternal life. Eternal life doesn't die because it's eternal. eternal. Oh, I see you guys are great today. And so anyway, chapter 5 and 6, and you get a picture that we are in the hands of God, that God is a father. Nobody can take us out of God's hands, that our salvation, again, is in his hands, and he is all-powerful. He can never lose one of his kids. Where I can premise this, I think this is a beautiful metaphor, and it distinguishes two theologies which I think are completely antithetical to each other. Anybody know about Calvinism and Arminianism? Anybody? Like most of you know, I have no idea what that means. Right, good. Most of you don't. I'm going to make this very simplistic for you, break it down very quickly and simplistic. First off, Arminianism is kind of like this. It's very man-centered. It's we seek for God, we look for God, we find God, we work for God, and God loves us because we found him. 
you know, did you find, I found Jesus, you know, oh good, because he was lost in the woods and couldn't find his way home, so I found him, you know, that poor Jesus, he's always getting lost, good thing he has us around to find him, okay, on the other side, you have a thing called Calvinism, and Calvinism says, no, what happens is that God seeks us, we don't seek God, that God finds us, that God chooses us, that God holds on to you and I, and I think that is the biblical view. Jesus teaches that we are like children. And in Armenian view, what that means is that as children, we have to hold on to the neck of our father by doing good works. And all that we're hanging on and hanging on. And if we stop to do good works, well, oh, no, we just fell and and we died. But the picture that Jesus gives is that God is our father and our father holds us. Our father hangs on to us. He is very strong. He never drops his kids on their head because he is a good dad. Okay, that's what God is like. What people wrongly take away from this verse is that if you don't do enough, you get cast into hell because God's not happy with you. That is a godless teaching. It's a godless teaching. I believe that until I actually became a Christian. And maybe you know, you're someone who's very into yourself. You think, oh, I'm great because I never smoked, drank, or cussed. My dog prays. You know, I never beat up anybody who doesn't have it coming. You know, I'm intelligent. I'm, I'm good looking. I'm, I'm humble and I'm proud of it. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> You know, but, but how do you know you, you, get, you get to go to heaven? You know, people say, well, if I'm good enough, you know, good people will go to heaven. Well, you know what Jesus' answer is to who gets to go? Perfect. Perfect. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says perfect. We say, oh, I'm a good person. Well, that's kind of tough because good is not perfect. You know, even when we think I'm good, it just proves that we're deaf and blind and dead because we don't seek God. You and I, we cannot earn God's favor or love. We cannot do enough. People have taken this verse and they're like, you've got to go to church five nights a week and you can't celebrate Christmas and you can't eat this and you can't dress like that and you've got to go door to door. Oh, you watched a movie? Off to hell. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, you hung out with so-and-so? Off to hell. That, that's what happens. Scripture tells you, oh, love God, but you hate Him, but you're afraid to tell Him you hate Him because you don't want to go to hell. I, we were at this wedding yesterday and I was sitting next to this guy who, whose father was a pastor and the kind of church that he came from was that kind of church. This guy doesn't like God, doesn't like Jesus. I actually was talking to him and I said, man, that's got to really mess up your view of Jesus. You know, he doesn't really answer that when I said that, but, but it does because that's the view that he was raised with. So what is Jesus saying here? Now, very rarely will I criticize your translation of the Bible, okay? Uh, I'll give you three reasons. One, I am not the best person to parcel the Greek text. I used to be better. Not so good today. Secondly, I don't want you to have a reduced confidence in the Bible you have. Uh, if I always picked it apart, you'd be like, well, I read it. And the third thing is, I think translations that you and I have are very good translations. NIV, New American Standard, New King James, uh, ESV, they're all very good translation. But I'm going to nitpick here just for a minute, okay? Uh, the word used for cutting off in this verse is used 23 times in John's Gospel. Eight occasions it means to cut off. Thirteen occasions it means to lift up. Then there's two other occasions which are kind of unclear. But that would give a completely different meaning to the verse. It could be followers who don't bear fruit will be cut off and sent to hell, or followers who don't bear fruit will be lifted up so they become healthy and they can learn how to bear fruit. It's the difference between God lifting up those who suck and God sending people to hell. You know, that's the difference. It's a big difference between, like, your, your car breaking down and me stopping by to help you or me just running you over because your car broke down. That's a big difference. See, if, if you are a true believer and you don't produce fruit, God will cultivate you. God will send you adversity. God will send you love and hope. And by his hand, he will lift you up. Anybody garden? Anybody garden in here? Okay, good, good for you, I guess. You know, what do you do if you have, if you, if you have a branch or a vine that, that could bear fruit, but it falls on the ground, it's laid in the dirt, it's covered with bugs, it doesn't get enough sun, but you know it could provide fruit if it was just lifted up off the ground. What do you do with it? You lift it off the ground. 
You lift it off the ground. Tomatoes, you know, but you tie them up and they grow better. My wife has a tomato plant in the backyard right now, hanging off this thing so nothing touches the ground. It kind of hangs and all the tomatoes grow. And I don't really like tomatoes, but, you know, whatever, you know. The branch has potential, so you lift it up. Now, I, you and I probably have times in our lives where we, we believe in Jesus, but we're not being that fruitful. We're not producing good fruit. We don't have a whole lot of love and not, hold on, not a whole lot of hope, and we're, and we're very self-centered. But then how do you come back to the place where you are fruitful? God lifts you out of the dirt, and he gives you grace so you can begin to bear much fruit. In light of the rest of the teaching of Scripture of who Jesus is, I think this verse is a note of caution and comfort. If you are truly a believer, you may desperately need God to lift you up so you can bear fruit. Good. All right. The other half of verse 2 goes like this. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So you may actually be in a place where you are bearing good fruit, but you keep undergoing trial, and you're like, what is going on with this? I've always got this trial going on. Does God hate me? Does he not love me? Has he abandoned me? Jesus' words are, no, he is pruning you. Maybe you have some behaviors or thoughts that take up too much headspace, and so he's trying to prune you. He wants you to grow. You know, how does God typically prune us? I think he prunes us through pain. It's like, that's not a good word. Yes, pain. He breaks open our hearts, and it hurts. Uh, I have calluses on my fingers from playing the guitar. And if I don't play long enough, they start to peel off. And if they peel up just a little bit, I'm kind of neurotic because I play with them. And then I'll go like this, and I'll rip it off. And when you rip it off, that hurts. And all of a sudden, it's very tender, and it's very painful. But that's what God does to our hearts through pain. He pulls the calluses off that we have so they're very tender. So when God goes, we go, ah. And we hear him again. So he takes us through pain so we get to hear him. I mean, after you go through something like that, you are more faithful, you're more alive, you're more fruitful. I think he teaches us through failure. Uh, We commit ourselves maybe to something and it doesn't go the way we want and it fails. Yet God grows us through that. I think God grows us through loss where sometimes maybe you're so sure this is the right thing and it doesn't work out. It gets taken away. I mean, it's not that there has been no fruit. Jesus says we have been fruitful, some of us. He's just pruning us to be more fruitful so that we birth life out of us that looks more like Christ in us. I mean, after many people go through the worst things in their lives, they're usually like, well, I would never have chosen that, but I would never want to go around that because it taught me to be who I am today. My wife and I lived in Iowa for almost a year. I would never wish that on any of you. But I wouldn't trade that for anything at this point in my life because I have learned so much from that experience. Verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. And the word remain, uh, other translations will actually use the word abide. Actually, the word abide is a much better word to use for that because that's what it means, abide. Abide in me and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide or remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus summarizes our life that way. Bearing fruit means we must abide. Abide in Him. Apart from Him, we are unfruitful. The whole theme is about abiding in Him. So what does it mean to abide? I think the first thing is sometimes when we abide, it means that we confess ourselves to Him. It means that sometimes we we wander away and we come back because of how we have confessed to Him and we say, I need you. And we come back and confess to Him. I think it means conforming to His image. Uh, Eugene Peterson gets knocked a lot because he did this translation of the Bible called The Message. Eugene Peterson has written some, some very good books. One of them is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Okay? I recommend it for all of you. It's a great book about discipleship and obedience that you follow the course God has set for you throughout your life. Now, I mean, in our current Christian culture, we think that if we're not spiritual giants in 15 minutes, 
well, there's something wrong with us, you know, or there's something wrong with, with this church I'm going to, or there's something wrong with, with how I've been doing things. And, and that's, that's not true. It takes time to plant and time to grow your crop and harvest the fruit. You know, my, my wife and I, uh, we, we have an apple tree. In our, in our backyard. And the first couple of years we had it, no fruit. And I'm like, we need to dig that thing out. And my mom, who you know, is a landscaper, she's like, no, 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 you give it lots of time. It starts to grow fruit. Like, okay, now it's got so much fruit, we don't know what to do with it. It's all over the ground. The dog eats it. She gets the runs. You know, it's like, I don't know what to do with all the fruit in the tree. But it takes time for the tree to get to the point where it actually bears fruit. There are no magic beans. Okay, you don't plant them the next day, boom. It takes time. It takes time. Uh, marriages take time. A relationship with God takes time. Sometimes I have premarital counseling people in my office, and they're like, we never argue. It's always great. And I'm like, oh yeah, you just wait. Because yeah. <laughs> it's coming. Because it takes work to eat and kill your pride. A study came out last year. It actually said it takes an average couple nine years in a marriage to get to the point where they actually learn how to selflessly love each other, to stop having your mind just upon yourself. Nine years. In our culture, you know, half the marriages don't last nine years, and they're going out there finding somebody else, and no one's getting to nine years. And it's like, this is terrible. Nine years. Takes time. Takes time. I tell you, all these people that come into my office before they get married, it's like, oh, the Garden of Eden's going to be at our address. It's going to be so wonderful. And I'm like, ha. <laughs> See? See? We know. Uh, I think you abide by prayer, by prayer. Communication. Uh, you can't have a relationship with zero communication. Intimacy is built through life, journey, and conversation, silence, and solitude, uh, where you abide in Christ daily. Abide in Christ daily. Sometimes you need to fast from your cell phone or your email. That's me. Uh, and, you, and you meditate on who God is. Not meditate in an Eastern sense where you empty your mind of everything, where you become nothing, but you think about a concept like abiding. And you spend time about that, allowing God to instruct you. You meditate on God's words for Jesus to be in you through his grace, loving unity. You can spend the rest of your life pondering that. So then Jesus speaks about what life is like for those who don't abide in him. Verse 6, anyone who does not remain or abide in me is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown to the fire, and burned. Now, there are fruit trees out there like grapevines, okay, which, which has such soft wood that if, you, if it's not bearing fruit, it's really good for nothing but burning. And some people's lives are like that. They don't amount to a whole lot because they're not abiding in Christ. They're not profitable to God's work. If you are somebody and you're not bearing any fruit, you must ask why. You must ask why. Are you truly a believer who needs to be lifted up? Or are you someone who simply tells other people that you're a believer and you're not really one? Now, Jesus talks about what abiding births in you and I. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you or abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the more we abide, the more we speak with him, and you find yourself talking to him more and more daily. And again, he says, God will answer our prayers when those prayers are about God's glory. That purpose means we exist for God's glory. God does not exist for our glory. He doesn't exist for your self-esteem or my self-esteem. I mean, if nothing in your life takes into account God's glory, then you have missed the point. Then you've missed the point. Uh, you know, in, in John 4.30, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. And he says, I must decrease and he must increase. You and I must be people who decrease so that he increases in our lives. We become less and he becomes more. The problem is that selfishness in you and I, it's hardwired from Adam. We are all selfish people. It has been nurtured in us since we were kids. We, we call it self-esteem. We're taught it in school. You know, uh, it, 
Bill Bennett writes the book, uh, the book of Virtues. You heard about the book of Virtue? You know, the only virtue not in the book is like humbleness because we're not really taught to be humble people. You know, we think it's all about us, but we're here that God might be adored and God might be loved and God might be glorified and God might be respected. But our hearts, they're always crying out, well, what about me? What do I get? What do I get? When God gets his glory, we get joy. Jonathan Edwards said, when God is most glorified, God's people are most happy. It's a great thought. It's a great thought. I mean, look at our media today. Okay? Everybody wants to be fulfilled and, and, and be happy. You know, how many people in the media they get, get all the glory and all this money, millions of dollars per movie, and they're just miserable? You got all the comedians who keep trying to off themselves because they're not very happy. They sound totally like Solomon, Ecclesiastes 12, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. They're like grasping at the wind. They don't have a whole lot of joy. But when you find somebody who loves God, who truly loves God, they actually have joy. Not because everything's going right and not because everything's great, but because their life is about Jesus and not about themselves. They probably get pruned all the time. It's like pain, pain, ow. They're pruned all the time and they never get any glory of their own, but they have joy because they live the purpose they were created for. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Paul says this in almost every gospel. As an example, Romans 16.27 says, to the wise and only God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. You will find in your life when your life feels most right will be when God gets the most glory. That's when you'll find it feels right. So Jesus goes on with this in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Again, the word abide. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's like abide in me, bear fruit, and you will bear fruit when you pray for it, and that fruit will come when you glorify the Father. And when it does, you will have more joy than you know what to do with. And Jesus calls this complete joy. Your joy will be complete. I mean, many of our struggles simply stem out of abiding in Christ. People always ask the question, well, how do I do more and love more and bear more? That's all the wrong question. The question is, where are we not abiding in Christ? We spend so much time trying to diagnose all of these symptoms of why am I not happy? And Jesus hits the root. He says, abide in me. You want true joy? Learn to abide in me. So Jesus gives a command that will bring joy and God glory. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other. How? As I have loved you. Love people as God has loved. And then he shows this, greater love has no one uh, than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Sacrificial love, pouring into another. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus lays down his life for us. Verse 14, and then Jesus says this amazing thing. Verse 14 says, You are my friends. You are my friends. I mean, you could spend the rest of your life pondering or meditating on that statement right there. It's easy to see God as, as king or boss or ruler, but friend. I mean, other people have tried to change friend into the word buddy. It's like, God is my co-pilot, and as I drive, he fiddles with the radio or something like that. You know, that, that's not what that means, you know. We lose the term friend in this. I have a very high view of God. I do not want to make him my buddy. He is our friend. It's easy to be a buddy. It is very hard to be a friend. My wife is probably my closest friend. Uh, I, could, I could spend 24 hours a day with her, and I still don't want to kill her. Okay, that's most of my friends. I spend a lot of time and I'm like, okay, I'm done spending time with you. I love spending time with my wife. I love being around here and she can be hard on me. She can be hard on me. She's not my little buddy. She is my friend. I enjoy her. We are friends and we enjoy each other. A buddy relationships works because they don't push you. 
They don't push you. They don't hold you accountable. They don't love you enough to call you out for your idiocy. Okay? One of the most liberating things you can ever learn and that I can ever tell you is that you need God. You are made to enjoy God, and that's not a sin or a weakness or a crutch. You were made for God. When joy, you know, that's where joy comes out of. It comes out of enjoying. As a result of enjoying Him, then all of a sudden serving and obeying becomes very easy. And I do not know why God would choose me as His friend, but He does. I can see why I want God to be my friend, but I'm a total dork, so, you know, I'll take the deal. (laughs) Verse 14, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. If you do what I command. He does not say when you obey me, you'll be my friend. He says, if you're my friend, it'll be demonstrated by obedience. This concept gets lost today. You know, people are like, you know, don't do this or that or sin like crazy or don't treat people like crap or, you know, and claim to be my friend and, and all this stuff. Jesus says, if you're my friend, you would simply honor my name. That's what you would do. And if you struggle, again, many times your, your obedience it is not that it, your, your struggle is with simply abiding in Christ, abiding in who he is. Verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Unbelievable. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So he teaches us what the father taught him. It's a little overwhelming. People ask, well, well, how do I get this? How do I get to bear fruit and touch the world and glorify God and speak to the creator of everything? You know, you know, why, how, how does that happen? And again, this is one of the most debated topics by theologians today. I think it's only debated for one reason, and that's we are self-deceived. You know, we want to say, oh, Jesus picked me because I'm so good, or I picked Jesus because I'm so smart. Like God really needs important people to make his plan work, you know. Jesus makes the gospel throughout the world through fishermen and tax collectors and Pharisees through stinky men, through IRS agents, and religious nutjobs. That's how he gets the gospel to the entire world. Jesus doesn't need anybody to help him. He can use and do whatever he wants on his own. So Jesus tells us how we get this lavish kindness. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Beautiful statement. We can't claim anything except God chose us. We weren't so wonderful that heaven couldn't contain itself and it had to show up and talk to us because it needed us so much, like Mormonism tries to tell you. Oh, you're so wonderful. Heaven couldn't contain itself and it had to come down. I mean, I'll tell you, if, if you're a believer and you've been a believer for any amount of time, most Christians have no idea what we're getting into when we believe in Jesus. It's like a few years down the road, it's like, I had no idea God was going to do this. But it's amazing what he does when we abide. When people say things like, well, when I chose Jesus, I got a job and a car and a house and a wife and lots of fruit. No. When he found you, when he found you, when you were connected to the vine, he bore much fruit through you. The glory is all God's. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Not 20 minutes of excitement before you burn out, but fruit that will last. It's why the church is still here today, because Jesus is still working through messed up people like you and I and taking it to where it needs to be. He says, Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, a nice way of saying according to his will. And verse 17 says, This is my command, love each other. So how does the world know that we are his disciples? By our love for each other. And Jesus all through this, Pray to the Father, abide in me. He will answer these prayers. So what kind of prayers should we pray for? Are you, what, what, what for you, what, what is the one thing that stands out of all of this from John 15 is the one thing that we should pray for? Abiding in Him, abiding in Him, this fruitfulness that would come out of us. We would buy and we pray for this fruitfulness. We pray for obedience that, that demonstrates this love. We pray for the sin in us that God would renew us over and over and over. 
We pray for love for each other, that we would be a people known by God's love. We pray for friendships, that we would extend hands of friendships to each other. We pray for salvation for those who don't know Christ, because that is fruit. And that people would truly learn how to abide in Christ and live the life God calls them to. Not just by making a whole bunch of noise, but by truly living as God calls us to live. I remember becoming a Christian when I was 17 years old. I can still remember the day. I can still remember how it felt. I remember the change in my heart and my life. And the transition that people make when they believe in Christ is amazing. Again, today, come to the baptisms. You'll get to read the stories of these people and see what has taken place in their life because of abiding in Christ. I think you also pray for opportunities for service, just like Jesus came to serve, where we can go and bear fruit. And if we're honest in our hearts, most times our, our prayers don't always go to this kind of thing. And we usually pray for ourselves. And I don't want to give you a guilt trip or anything like that. But I think many times there's a problem simply in our abiding. Because it seems like if we were abiding, that fruit and salvation would explode from our lives. So this week, I want you to pray about abiding. I want you to pray about resting in Him and that fruitfulness that comes out of it. That God gets His glory and we get joy and that fruit would continue. It's amazing some of the things that God has done, even in here. And again, come to the baptisms. You'll see some of the stuff that God is doing because it's amazing. God has given you and I love and grace. And through that all, we should begin to bear much fruit because of His love. As God initiates, we then respond. And this morning, we will respond by taking communion. You know, communion reminds us of what Jesus has done for you and I. And we take that cracker and you break it just like his body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So that we can be people who truly can abide in him again. We worship through communion. We're going to worship through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back of the room. And if you have a problem with abiding or you've never abided at all or this is a totally new concept. It's like, I've been working and working and working. I never knew I was supposed to rest in Christ. Pray with them. They would love to pray with you and introduce you to who Christ is. Um, worship through prayer. We're going to worship through song. The band's going to come back up. Sean got a haircut last week. I didn't notice until yesterday, apparently, so I got made fun of. Uh, we're going to worship God through song. And, and as we sing these songs, take a couple minutes. You know, take communion, pray, ask God, where, hey, God, where am I not abiding? How can I learn how to abide better and more? How can I learn to rest simply in your presence? So pray about that. Uh, we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall. And in the very back of the room, there's a really cool one made with a wrench. It's great. Uh, and we give simply because God gave so much to you and I. And we worship God through fellowship where hopefully you guys don't just run out of here. You go eat the food that people brought in the back. You have some coffee. You get your whole little coffee high. And then, and then you remember to come to the baptisms today. Have I said that enough yet? Come to the baptisms today. And, and even, even if you're, you know, you're not going to stay for lunch or something, just come for the baptisms for like that half hour and then go. But it's, we, we want everybody as part of this family to be part of the baptisms that take place because it's a party. Even if it's overcast and God deems not to send the sunlight down on us today, makes for better pictures, okay? You know, <laughs> silver lining somewhere, okay? <laughs> I get that. So uh, come today. Abide in Christ. Live in the joy he has given you because that joy that he gives you is infectious because that's what people are looking for. Love, joy, abide in that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who truly learn how to abide in your joy and your grace and your love. Father, that you would take in, in those times that are very hard for us, when you are pruning us, we'd be those who trust in you and have faith in what you are doing. 
God, help us to see the, the trials we go through as times of growth and times to, to pull us closer into trusting you. And God, if there are people in this room this morning who have gone through their lives thinking that, that following you is, is about doing and doing and doing and have never heard this concept of learning how to abide, that today your spirit would speak volumes to their hearts and they would learn how to love and abide in you. That they could simply trust and rest in the grace that you have bestowed upon us because you are so good. You are so good. Remind us of that goodness this morning. Amen.